there's a Sicilian saying that says, if you kick every stone along your path, you'll get holes in your shoes. So I've probably learned how to let some of the things slide and to just use it as motivation and say, that's all right, I'm going to get my way in, in the long run because I'm not going to, I'm not stopping. G'day and welcome to episode 69 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and thanks a lot for tuning in again this week. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and extend my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to extend those respects to the traditional owners wherever you may be and wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, LAWD, the specialists in agribusiness valuations and transactions. To find out more and check out their latest listings, head to www.lawd. Emma Germano is a true trailblazer in Aussie Ag. She's certainly not been afraid to give things a go and challenge what's possible. Funnily enough though, Emma's story starts off as a young woman wanting to pursue a career in medicine, but it required her to do a period of studies in rural Australia. And having grown up on the family farm in Gippsland, it was the thing that she least wanted to do. And so, she put that career on medicine on hold and then went and studied at Melbourne Uni. It led her down a path of working in the family restaurant, starting her own business. Quite a few mistakes later, many lessons have been learned. Emma's certainly put it all on the line. She's learned from those mistakes and it makes her an absolute trailblazer in Aussie Ag. Enjoy the chat. How do you describe what you what you do to the average person down the street? Oh, it's actually it's it's quite funny because um, uh, as we're all living in coronavirus restrictions at the moment and getting pulled over by police officers to prove who we are, um, I was actually pulled over a couple of days ago and trying to convince the cop that I was actually a farmer and had some farmland because I also have like I have a license that says I have a Melbourne address um, and I've obviously been out on the farm um, since all of the restrictions have been you know in place full time. Uh, I really am a farmer, I guess, is what I'm always telling people. But that whole, um, the whole BFF role is, you know, totally a full-time role as, as well. And it's it's a lot less to do with being a farmer than what it has to do with, you know, being the president of the, of the BFF. It's not exactly the same skill set, but obviously being on the land gives you the passion for understanding why the advocacy is so important. Um you know, when I did my Nuffield scholarship, we sat around navel gazing at the, you know, what do we call ourselves and are we farmers and am I a grower? Am I, you know, agribusiness professional or agri-entrepreneur or all of these fancy words. But, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, like my bread and butter um, ultimately is about being a farmer. So I guess I say I'm a farmer and then have to fill in the details around that. Um, but, yeah, it's it's interesting having, you know, people will say, oh, you don't look like a farmer. And it's like, well, if you think a farmer looks like a 57-year-old man with some wheat hanging out of his mouth, then it's a good thing that I don't look like a farmer. But I think that that perception is <laughs> starting to change quite a bit. You know, we're starting to understand, I guess, like, as you say, uh, who, who the humans of agriculture are and, and um, the, the roles in the businesses and the roles in the industry that bring the whole industry together. I think you've touched on quite a few of the different roles and things you do. So you've, yeah, the politics, entrepreneur, grower, farmer, side I, I guess I want to come back and look at that kind of 
a bit more deeply in terms of your leadership, but would love to know a younger Emma growing up in Gippsland. What was it you wanted to do when you were going through high school? Uh, so I really wanted to be a doctor and um, I mean, yeah, I was like, oh, do I want to be a doctor or do I want to be a lawyer? I guess if you're good at academic studies that you kind of like pitch yourselves into in, yourself into those sort of jobs. But I was kind of always like my science versus my kind of creative, artistic, linguistic kind of stuff has always been fairly balanced. And I so I didn't know which way I would tend, um, but I was actually accepted into um uh, medicine at Monash University under their rural program and the deal was that you could get in with a slightly reduced enter score so I you know I didn't hit the 99 point whatever but if you were going to um, commit to going back to the regions they would let you in as long as you passed your entry um, examination with with decent marks and but I was like there is no way I am going back to the country so so I mean that that the irony of that is not lost on me now but I ultimately wanted to go to Melbourne University so I, I didn't accept the, the medicine offer um, and then studied um, arts and sciences and a whole mix of different subjects and um, yeah it was it was really interesting I just never ever thought that I would come back to the farm in any capacity actually I mean we'd, we'd talk about it growing up and dad would say one day I'm going to die and I'm going to leave you this land and maybe you can have some cows walk around on it and I hope you don't just sell it really quickly that was kind of the the narrative that had been put into my head around um I guess my relationship with the farm and obviously that has completely changed uh but yeah certainly didn't think I was going to be a farmer when I grew up so what what was it that spurred on the change or yeah I guess there, there's the uni path study part studying arts etc where did you go post uni and then how on earth have you ended up back being a farmer yeah like it's actually um a a a line of um unfortunate events i suppose that that got me (laughs) back onto the farm but i i'm so um grateful now for the hardship that i went through because it did lead me back to the farm so it's interesting you can go through some terrible times and and what you realize is that who you are today is a culmination of all the things that that happened so I was at uni and um, because I just moved to Melbourne I um, started working for my cousin in a business on Ligon Street and it was kind of probably the first time I um, understood even my uh, cultural heritage of being Italian and being on Ligon Street it was this whole other world um, and I saw him running this restaurant I thought oh yeah that's that's easy peasy that's exactly what I'll do I'll just go and buy a restaurant um, I'll put my studies on hold for a bit I'll make heaps of money um, be rich and then I'll be, you know, able to retire by the time I'm 30 and, you know, sweet, there's life. Except I bought a restaurant um, and within about, I mean, it was a bad buy to start with and then within about three months of the purchase, the global financial crisis hit and our takings literally halved from where they were, which, you know, they were never what they were supposed to be right from purchase and then they halved again. So um, very quickly it became a really difficult business to be the owner of, um, no, I wasn't a chef. I don't know what I was thinking. I think that um, sometimes like, you know, I had no beginner's luck, that's for sure. Um, and I was totally naive as to what I was doing. And so therefore business baptism of fire, um, the restaurant started to lose quite a bit of money. The farm had to chip into that. Um, you know, I kind of got it to recover to some level and then, but it was, you know, like uh, there had been a lot of sunk funds. We were kind of trapped in there trying to sell it, all these other things. But at one point I thought, okay, I'm going to go off and do some business studies um, to try and get this restaurant ready to be marketed for sale. Like I need to, to do something to get rid of it. Um, so through that process, 
of doing the business studies, I was actually approached by a family who were running a business and they asked me if I would actually start to deliver some of this business training to, to some of their clients. So I actually went from doing the learning from them to, hey, will you come on board and teach? And then there was, so I through that process, sold the restaurant and then went into um, ultimately being a kind of business consultant to small um, and medium businesses. And that, that was kind of partway of the journey. Oh, wow. It's um, a true baptism by fire. <laughs> it was, it's actually complete madness now that I look back on it. And I, I, you know, in fact, we went through like a, this family situation where we were all blaming each other. You know, whose fault was it that, we, that Emma was allowed to have a restaurant? You know, was it dad's fault for backing her in and saying he'd go guarantor? Was it mum's fault? Because at one point, you know, we kind of picked up and she insisted that, yes, we should sign another lease and make sure that we sell it and all sorts of things. So it, it created it, you know, it was a family argument and it actually had put quite a lot of pressure on the farm. So I went off to do these business, um, this, you know, consultancy job, um, but a lot of money had come out of the farm and then we had a drought and then we had a bad debtor who, you know, who didn't, who didn't pay. And it was something like four or $500,000. My dad was just not paid by one wholesaler for, you know, an entire season's worth of crop. And all of a sudden the farm started to become under really serious financial pressure. And one day dad and I were having a conversation about how um, he thought that Collie's cauliflowers, sorry, were worth 40 bucks, 40 bucks a carton. And he said, he rang me and he said, I was with, another business, a news agency, I remember. Um, and he said to me, oh, I've only been, I've just received a fax to say that I'm getting paid 20 bucks a carton, but I'm pretty sure that cauliflowers are worth $40 a carton in the, in the Sydney market. And I said to him, you're mad. Like, why would you invest all of that money into growing a crop, the effort that you put into the planning, the timeline, the, you know, the, the debt that you carry to do it, all of those things, to not even know whether or not you're going to get paid the right amount when it's time, you know, time to get the stuff to market. And he literally said, oh, you're off literally right now in another business helping them. I think you probably need to come back. And if you think you can do a better job, love, like come and have a crack. And that was 10 years ago. I think I'm coming into my 11th season um, this summer. And yeah, I I really genuinely thought it would be the way that I approached um, the other businesses that I was helping just to go in and kind of give them some templates and, look at their sales strategy and then leave again and yeah 11 years ago and I'm still on the farm (laughs) and so I guess the the learnings of the um of that business failure did it scare you coming back in and being reliant kind of on the family or, or the family relying on you to do good again and have that pressure oh it was um it's interesting to talk about because it was like, it was entirely traumatic. And when I say entirely traumatic, it it culminated with me standing at the top of a hill on our farm in the drizzle with all of these people there, you know, our farm was being auctioned, you know, I had to buy our farm back. That was, so yeah, it was epic in regards to the responsibility and the sense of that responsibility because it was my mistake that had gotten us into that financial situation. And the thought of, you know, dad being the second generation on the farm and if, if it was sold up on them, what would they do at the age that they were getting to? And it was, it was amazing, but um, yeah, I guess it shows you the value of farms to farming families because, you, you know, I say that the farm felt like a, a member of the family that we couldn't lose and we couldn't forsake and we had to do everything in our power to protect it and, and to, to carry it on. And, and so I guess succession planning happened by accident and fairly brutally for us. Um, 
and it's interesting how things can maybe not tangibly change. So, I mean, okay, the name on the title changed from Laurie Germano to Emma Germano, um, and yet that shift was something that was epic. And I remember, it at, you know, just as we were leading into um, the settlement of the contract, um, Dad and I, for the first time in basically ever, had stopped speaking to each other. And not, not in a sense that we were angry with each other, but there was just this awkwardness of the, the, the transition of, I suppose, ownership and therefore perception of power. And, and I just think about how that succession um, difficulty, which was, you know, very extreme in our family, it was, it's an extreme example of it, how that impacts, you know, all other farmers and farming families. It's a huge issue that the industry needs to think about and, and, and from from learning about it, succession from the family farm, I think about that in my role at the VFF where it was probably, yes, you know, the older generation who have been the custodians of that organisation um, and now there's kind of been this sense of succession, I suppose, in me becoming the president of the organisation and that actually it's not usually because people are not supportive of the younger generation coming through on the family farm or through in the VFF or, or anywhere else, but it's the sense of, displacement that happens or a sense of redundancy to the person who is doing the handing over and I think it's so intrinsic particularly with farming it's so intrinsically linked with someone's sense of self-identity that all of a sudden dad's not worried about Emma taking over the farm like this is his dream right like it turns out that one of his kids wants to carry on the legacy um, but actually what he had to face at that period of time was the redundancy and I guess a sense of his own mortality which yeah it's difficult. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. It's a fascinating concept when you start talking about it like that. Like It is the self-identity and it's loss of control or loss, maybe a loss of input. Like I think it comes back to it's, it's a loss of something. And from the outside looking in, it's a lot of the time it's actually a perceived loss as opposed to a, yeah, actual kind of loss. Yeah, that's right. I mean, dad's doing the exact same thing. I say that the tangible difference was that I went from being his cheapest employee and now he's my cheapest employee. (laughs) (laughs) That, yeah, it was just so interesting that handover. And at one point, you know, having this, like it, you, at one stage it culminated to a, a massive argument where it was about who's more valuable, you know, like, but I'm the person who's still out there doing the physical work. And I'm like, but I'm the person who makes sure that there's money to, in order to that for that to happen and, and looks after all of the books. And I was like, Dad, you can't farm with me, without me. And he's like, but Emma, you can't farm without me. And so this, yeah, the relationship management there, um, yeah, it, it's been a, a really amazing journey actually. Um, and it makes you face a whole bunch of things that are far, you know, far more important, I suppose, than like you said, the tangible stuff of whose names on a whose names on the title or or whatever. That um, like that leadership management 
learning that you've had to, like with your dad? How have you taken that into the businesses and roles that you've had kind of, yeah, with other people, but also potentially where there is that conflicting perspective or yeah, conflicting opinions? Yeah, I guess, um, and don't get me wrong because the VFF is a sound organisation financially, but there is a there has been, I think, a sense of decline of, of influence perhaps or, you know, the membership is, you know, the numbers are declining and, and you know, what does that organisation stand for? And I, I suppose the lesson that I've learned is how to turn around a business that is in, is in distress because that's what's happened on our farm, you know. It was a business that was in distress. We were growing um, to appease a bank, you know. It was like put more and more cauliflowers in and, and hope for the best, even though our yields are declining, we're exhausted, the land's exhausted, the whole thing's not not working out. And I think what I learnt was how to, I mean, I tried to do it in stages. I remember when I first got here, it was like, oh, yeah, I still want to be the biggest vegetable grower in Australia and I'm going to do this and how do I get funding and how do I how do I continue to grow? And this picture of success that I think is set up for a lot of um, young people about what it looks like to be successful, which is not often, you know, I think it's really important to define your own version of success. But I tried to cut back and tried to cut back and tried to cut back. And I suppose at the moment that I bought the farm, I was like, we have to cut back to the bone, right? Like in this circumstance, we have to start again and we've got to start again in something that's a, a, a sustainable um, way of doing business. Um, and because I guess we had the hardship not having the money available, um, I had to be really innovative in the way that I farmed. So, you know, I didn't have $500,000 to invest into a cauliflower crop like we ordinarily would. So that forced me to be in a position where um, at first we actually stopped growing cauliflowers for a bit. Um, but when we eventually started growing, I think it was two or three seasons later, we started growing cauliflower again. It was a totally different model as to how we had done it previously it's now a vertically integrated kind of business venture with a wholesaler who essentially takes on all of the risk of the crops because often farmers are just getting you know they take on all of the risk and hoping for the best um, and I don't think that the amount that we get paid for our commodities despite the fact that we're having a great time at the moment um, it's not always like that um, we don't always get paid for the amount of risk that we actually take um, so essentially change the models. We're still growing the cauliflowers and doing the thing, but I'm not paying for any of the inputs. I'm not paying for the hailstorm. Um, and that's been an awesome thing. And it means that we're actually growing the cauliflowers better because we've got that sense of freedom. And the same with purchasing livestock. We, we went more heavily into our livestock again. Um, but, you know, doing a deal with the neighbour where, you know, he puts the animal on, we split the cost of, uh, we could split the profit at the end, all these little things that we, until we were forced to think that way, we weren't. And I think that that's maybe what I've learned is to how to be, um, I don't know, slightly more um, innovative and entrepreneurial, um, you know, and, and know how to hustle. You've got to know how to hustle. And I think that's probably been really helpful to the leadership role or the leadership roles and particularly this one as the president. I'd love to know on that. Um, yeah, I guess I've got two questions coming off the back of that. First one being just around the drive. Where, where does the drive for you to keep, yeah, trying things, being innovative, having the setbacks, kind of, yeah, putting everything you've got on the line and throwing it 100% kind of at something, whether that's the, the restaurant in Ligon Street, it's the, the farm business. Where does that come from? Geez, that's a really, that's a good question. You just kind of almost made me emotional. I, we don't really stop and think about those things that often, right? Um, 
I mean, ultimately, it probably goes back to the migrant story. I had, you know, four grandparents that all came to Australia literally with, you know, not, literally nothing. So, yeah, I mean, there's a really epic work ethic um, in our family. I mean, I actually think it's to the point where it's almost detrimental. Like, unless you're working, you're apparently what you're doing is not valuable. So stopping and <laughs> that you're enjoying life as you go is actually really important it's probably the balance that i i need more of um i don't know kind of i i get really passionate about stuff i'm either completely 100 percent interested or i'm usually completely disinterested in things like there's some things that just don't register on my care factor at all and i just will simply not know anything about it um i don't know i think it's like inherent it's also my parents have instilled in us a sense of like do your thing like do whatever you're doing and be good at it um yeah and I'm and maybe a little bit stupid at times uh, sometimes I think that I can be um my being tenacious can sometimes be a, a, a drawback I think and you've got to actually know sometimes when to let go as well and that's probably something I could get better at <laughs> <laughs> when you're just going flat out at everything <laughs> in terms of the advocacy base because I think what you've alluded to there inside the farm gate you came up with some highly innovative ways of actually running the business it was removing the risk not actually holding the business back from it what what was the relevance in advocacy i guess you you've managed to turn the business around it's it's operating you've got money coming in you're able to keep farming so why advocacy could you not just make the change within the business and that would be sufficient um i think oh it's really I think something that we're really bad at doing in Australia is speaking positively about ourselves because you don't want to come across like a complete wanker, right? Um, I feel like I have a capacity to, I have a capacity and a gift to be able to communicate and it just has, for some way or another, I, I guess I've always had the opportunity to use that gift for the betterment of others, I suppose. So doing the farm thing, I guess, is a sense of doing something, you know, it's your own business, it's your own land, it's your own wealth that you're growing and it, it possibly um, isn't enough to satisfy satisfy me. I mean, having said that, like why couldn't I go out and volunteer for the Red Cross and, and satisfy that, you know, that need to um, do stuff on behalf of the community? I, it, it all kind of happened by accident realistically. Um, I wanted to learn, so <clears throat> the first thing that I, I remember getting back on the farm and like Googling farming organisations and I think Ausveg popped up and I just clicked on their uh, on their webpage and one of the things that was sitting there was um, a women's tour to Israel and to Italy and, you know, you could get funded to do it. And I was like, oh, my God, imagine if I like got selected. Like I just thought it was now that I think about it, now, now that I understand the context, it was like, that was a no-brainer. Like they were going to let you go on that tour, Emma, because you're a young female in the agriculture industry. You know, there is so much support actually and so many opportunities. I think that as an industry we should never speak about ourselves as like this, you know, this poor industry. We're not like no industry in Australia speaks about itself and to itself and creates all of these opportunities for itself the way that we do. And I think that's something that we should be like awesomely proud of. Um, so mm. anyway, I went on that. I ended up being selected to do that to go on that tour and it kind of kicked off a chain reaction when I was on that um when I was on the tour there was a lady with me who who was also on it and she said oh there's this thing called a Nuffield scholarship and and you get thirty thousand dollars and you get to do a research topic and blah 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 and I remember thinking at the time oh wow like 
you know, maybe in a few years, like I, if I establish myself and I keep being on the farm and whatever, I might have a crack at this scholarship. But actually what ended up happening was I saw it open the next year and I thought, ah, I'll just have a crack at that because <laughs> the worst thing that happen is they'll say no and then I'll know for the following year, like I'll have the inside tip, you know, you lose once, you get, you get better at winning the next time. Um, and then I got the Nuffield Scholarship and that just, it just snowballed. And the, the very first thing that happened was I got a tap on the shoulder um, hey, Emma, will you come and be part of the VFF? I mean, there were a few little other committees that I did before then that gave me the exposure for the VFF role. But I remember the first time one of the staff members called me and said, oh, Emma, we've just, we're just wondering if you would do a little bit of radio. Um, there's this thing called the backpack attacks. And because you've got backpackers on your farm, we thought you might be able to authentically speak to it. Promise it'll only be one, one radio program that you have to do and we'll send you the briefing note. I mean... Ten years later that, or however long it's been. <laughs> I think it's like five years or six years later or five years later or something. But, again, chain reaction. But what's really important is that um, what happens, the, the policy decisions that are made out there, that, that backpack attacks um, policy fiasco made me realise that I can do so much of that innovation and the entrepreneurship and all that stuff on my farm and actually, I am so impacted by government decisions that are made, like policy settings that are created outside of my control beyond the farm gate. And I think that that's probably that realisation um, is what really inspired me to, to really kind of stick it to advocacy. Like it just, I actually really believe in the potential in these organisations and, you know, the VFF, obviously, um, that we need those organisations there that can do the speaking on behalf of us as an industry, particularly in that setting when it comes to setting government policies that totally impact not just our lives as farmers, but basically everybody who's an eater um, is affected by food policy and they don't even know about it. And so I guess I'm really passionate about sharing that story. In terms of the, um, what was I say? Oh, the interest in politics is a fascinating one because I think like at the farm level, a lot of my mates and like highly political in terms of what they talk about and views and opinions, but when it comes to actually jumping in and supporting organisations, whether it's, yeah, even just your local grower group or it's um, things like Future Farmers Network or even into the, the VFF and what you guys are doing, like there's a real struggle for membership organisations where people are talking about it, but the involvement, there's it's a real gap. Um, as uh, Yeah, I Right. Yeah. To, to, to do that little bridge across, it's not like we're talking about stuff that people aren't interested in. They're absolutely interested in it. But to do that um, formal engagement, it, it is so difficult. So so you've just come in as the president. Jeez, was it last year? It's a while ago now. Or was it earlier this year? I don't even know. Not it's a while. Don't say that. I say I'm still <laughs> new. That's a better excuse. No, it was December last year. Oh, yeah. You're still new. Um, still. In terms of... <laughs> last for years in terms of um what well you guys have already you've released that open open gate conversations piece i'm guessing that's or you've been involved with the organization anyway so it's kind of been a undercurrent maybe even before you're president but it's just gone live in terms of yeah what what would you say you're looking to implement um as a president and what kind of mark are you trying to i guess make initially and then start to build on and leave yeah, it's interesting because there's the organisation's strategic plan that we we got out, you know, about a month ago, which was actually a like a, a huge challenge um, because there was this like uh, tug of war, like this sense of 
what are you going to take away from the legacy of the VFF if you try and change stuff? And I, and I get that, right? Like, again, it's the same conversation between me and dad. Like, you know, who, who's more valuable here? And it's like, I don't want to come in and, um, you know, I, I wipe away everything that's been done. I just want to be able to build on that, right? Like, I want to be able to do that justice and continue to build on that. So there's a huge legacy there. But that point that you made about connecting with that next generation I think is entirely important um so the way that we do engagement I want it to be an organization that um people can engage with it in the manner that they want to do engagement um whatever that means I think we have a false assumption or maybe the older generation have a false assumption that our oh, young people like to do everything on social media and it's like well actually when no, I, um, I hate no, the hate zoom I want to see people <laughs> yeah well, we want to be social and we want to have a sense of community like do we want to sit in a meeting and you know move the previous minutes and you know look at the action items and who did the resolution and what does the constitution and bring it to a conference and this old school style of getting input into the organization that's what young people don't that just doesn't um reverberate anywhere i think anymore and so what's actually you know we talk about it being democratic but if you're only hearing about democracy from, you know, 5% of the members of the organisation, you know, I would say, have we set up democracy so that it's not very democratic? Um, mm. So that's one thing. Uh, it's also a, a, a clunky old organisation in the fact that, you know, you, there's multiple entities and whatever, so I want to kind of clean that up and make it so that the next person doesn't have to focus on the governance of all of this um, stuff, you know, this stuff that has nothing to do with advocacy. Um, and then also setting it up so that it's not a one man or one woman band, which is, you know, there's a lot of um, huge amount of emphasis placed on the president in that organisation. And I think that what we need to do is raise up the army, right? Like it's got to be everybody knows how to advocate for agriculture, whether that's to their their friends in town, <clears throat> whether it's to, you know, through things like what you're doing, um, that we actually inspire that as being part of the, the cultural norm of our organisation. I think that's super important. So not much to do in the next, oh, I think I've got about 12 months before that next call of an election. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading. Owned and designed in Outback Australia, Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy. But their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClellan, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola ambassadors. And we're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids shirt, Antola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. I want to ask around jumping through the loopholes um, of industry, what barrier has kind of the imposter syndrome for you been? And, And what have been some of those barriers that have popped up for you being young female vocal in the sense that you're advocating for the industry that not just you want to see but others um 
How have you taken that? And do you still feel like an outsider? Um, yeah, that another. Geez, you're good at the questions. I guess. That's <laughs> um, I think it has. Well, I think everything has its drawbacks and its benefits. Um, it, I think that when you're a young female, or you know what, and I, you know, I obviously get asked to go and speak at women's things all the time, and I, I have to say I don't necessarily love it, and I always will say people will find reasons to discount themselves. It'll be I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good looking enough, I have a disability, I'm from a different culture. Like we, we do that. Like we always try and work out how we are the imposter. I mean, obviously I do certainly look like an imposter, but I think the, the benefit has been people have seen me as being different to what the norm is and therefore they expect change. So it, it, I actually think it's put wind in my sails. The other thing that I think has been really difficult and it's not just at the VFF and, I mean, I, I sound like I'm airing dirty laundry, but I think this is very prevalent in lots of membership organisations, community organisations, you know, our politicians in, in this country at, at all levels, um, is that if you're endorsed, and I'll say boys club, but I don't mean it in that derogatory sense per se, but for lack of a better word, you know, if, it, if you're endorsed by the boys club, it's pretty difficult for you to go outside and do sometimes thought leadership that requires you to make changes and to bring people along for the ride because they're the people that endorsed you in the first place, right? I think you get a sense of that representing them is also about that, you know, being the same as them. Um, Whereas for me, I never was endorsed in that manner, right? Like I just came in, I was different from the very outset and people, people were supportive of me because I was different. So it's meant now that when we're trying to drive change at the VFF, I'm probably less impacted by the sense that, oh, I'm being disrespectful to the people who supported me into this role in the first instance. I feel like I was endorsed to or I was given the mandate to make the change because everybody knew that I was different right from the outset. But I think that the bit, yeah, it it definitely comes at a higher personal cost and, you know, there's times where it's so obvious that you're getting that reaction because you're a female and you're not a male or you're the wrong age. And, I mean, it used to be something that, really probably bothered me more Uh, there's a Sicilian saying that says if you kick every stone along your path you'll get holes in your shoes so I've probably learned how to let some of the things slide and to just you know I kind of uh, use it as motivation and say that's all right I'm going to get my way in in the long run because I'm not going to I'm not stopping like that's okay you can give me and particularly at the moment where we're going through change and there's some people that are resisting that change I just keep thinking to myself, oh, these people just don't know that I'm just going to keep moving forward. Like you, you might be holding on from the back. You might be trying to stand out in front and block and all that stuff, but I just, we're, I'm just doing the thing because I have a really clear sense of having the mandate to, to do what it is that I, I want to do there. It's a real like self-belief and confidence that needs to come with it because I think once you're in those positions of leadership and, and power in terms of because you, you're now representing the whole industry at a state level, um, like you don't want the person who's second guessing themselves that whole time. So you do, you you do want that person to be backing themselves. And it happens. I mean, like I already, I guess to be in the role meant that I had a level of self confidence. You know, like all of the roles that I put my hand up and said, yeah, okay, I'll have a go at that, or yes, I'll attend that meeting, even though like I don't fit in that room and whatever, and I'll just I'll just rock up, right? Like that was the thing. I'm just going to say yes, and I'm just going to go, and it's just okay. 
And that's very much a sense of, you know, my mum and dad have just instilled that, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I, it was only four weeks into the role. I was like, I don't know what I've done here. Like this was a really bad mistake. Like I was, I obviously had an inflated sense of self to think that I'd be able to affect this change. And it was just like, it was a bit overwhelming. And then you do get resistance or that, that, that you know, the first time you get trolled online or, you know, I had literally had an open um, webinar about six weeks ago and, and someone stood up and said, oh, you're incompetent. Someone who, I mean, I may have used the line that turkeys don't vote for Christmas and it annoyed a few people. Um, and so, you know, this dude's like, you're incompetent and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's interesting because I think if you don't have people telling you that they hate what you're doing, it means that there's no one who loves what you're doing. It means that you're not doing anything at all. Like if you're not annoying someone, it simply means that you're not doing anything because that's just the nature of how, you know, people are. Like there's just going to be people who disagree. And if you're not hearing from them, it means that they haven't heard what you've done. So yeah, I, I, there's been a huge, it felt really, really uncomfortable. Like I could, you know, like when you, I don't know, my mum used to say to me, I remember being about seven or eight and being like, oh, mum, my legs hurt. She'd be like, oh, it's growing pains. I was <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, I don't know, like, it, I don't know if everybody's mum says that, but we had like growing pain. Like if you, you're, you're in pain because you're growing and it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's like just totally quasi science there, but I had that same sense again in, you know, the first six months of the role of just, yeah, the, the growing pain and getting to trying to find that validation and acknowledgement and that people were supportive, but at a point you do actually get easier at copying the criticism, which I think is both a good thing and a bad thing because I think if you go too far, you you become arrogant enough that you're no longer listening to the people that um, you're supposed to be representing, right? But And, you know, you can see that with a lot of our politicians. They're just, like, out mm. of touch and they don't care. Like, they get absolutely reamed online and they just seem to not care there's a fine balance there, I guess, for every individual to work out for themselves. I did say that my, my family, um, they're, they're very good. I, I, I really, I mean, I know that sounds really like a good Italian girl, right? But if my mum and dad aren't really pissed off with something that I've done, I'm probably okay. Like at the end of the day, it's my family that they keep it really real, right? Like, and they, it's the difference between, I don't know, it, you've got to be careful where you get your advice from because some people, you know, can be driven, but we do have a, still a real massive problem with tall poppy syndrome in Australia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people's criticism is actually driven by envy that you're in that particular role. So it's, yeah, you've got to, oh, I guess that's, yeah, you've got to use your intuition to know who to listen to and know when to just keep going despite the criticism. Absolutely. I think we could keep talking for hours, but there's one question which I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. You get the chance, and I'm, I'm sure this happens to you quite a bit. You're heading down to a year 10 class tomorrow and you get to talk to them about a bit of life advice and why potentially a career in agriculture. Okay, so the first thing I'm saying to, well, I'm thinking about like my former year 10 self um, and then everybody else, I guess, firstly, don't get hung up on what your um, VCE results are going to be. Like they, they, this is a lie. They're lying to you. You do not need to be that stressed about it. There's so many opportunities in life and they happen quickly and learning happens in so many different ways. So that would be number one. And number two, I guess I would probably say to the smart kids, don't discount agriculture because there are so many opportunities that I think we have failed as an industry to show people like, I have had the opportunity to indulge all of the things that I love, which is like the science of actually growing stuff, the business of, you know, like being entrepreneurial and you have your own business. Um, you can be involved in it. It's 
you know, an industry that's heavily engaged with politics and, you know, world global politics. You've got the opportunity to do travel. Um, there's a bunch of really cool people. And the bit that I think I only really came to get, really understand because of A, well, mainly the pandemic. I remember the, when we first, everything went to shit and I remember coming home to the farm and never having been so appreciative of, of the fact that we have the farm and actually tangibly falling in love with the space and the place of the farm, I think has been something that I really have come to um, appreciate more recently and that it's a great lifestyle. Like stuff being in a office in the city, like there are really awesomely well-paid jobs that you can be out in the glory of nature and out in regional Australia, which is awesome. Um, so, you know, go and check it out and start by just doing some fruit picking, by the way. Like that's my usual plug. Like you leave yourself <laughs> do some fruit picking for three months and then you'll see how awesome agriculture is. We'll actually get some stuff picked in this country. <laughs> Very wise advice. And it's a it's a full circle from the kid who wanted to study medicine and get as quickly out of the regions as they could to now advocating for them. It's it's quite a yeah. funny, funny way to end, but it's um hmm. pretty cool. Well we're not in geez, there's hopefully heaps to go. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat as well. Emma is someone who I've had the pleasure of knowing for the last few years, but I certainly didn't know a lot of her story. So it was fascinating and I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit of, a little bit more about who Emma is. We've recently relaunched the Humans of Agriculture website, which is looking pretty Mickey Mouse. If you want to jump over to our website, humansofagriculture.com, you can check out all the latest stories, our podcast episodes and learn a little bit more about what Humans of Agriculture is. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and I'll see you next Wednesday.